This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 22nd, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Carl Heinz Campert talks with Andrew Wagner about cosmic rays from a galaxy far, far away. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our online news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent stories. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> First up, we have a story on animal hordes. Uh, some people collect life-sized, incredibly realistic baby dolls, others certain types of china, and some collect everything, filling their houses with food, newspaper, and more. And those people can be considered to have a mental disorder, hoarding. What kind of disorder is this, Catherine? Where does it fit in the pantheon of psychiatric illness? First of all, let me compliment you on your animal hordes intro as opposed to Viking hordes. Exactly. Um, but when it comes to this as a disorder, people who hoard, they just can't stop collecting. If you saw the desks of some of our newsroom colleagues, you might know what I mean. But hoarding disorder is really no joke for the people who have it. They have an ongoing and really hard-to-control urge to keep accumulating stuff. Sometimes the stuff is valuable, like those china plates you were talking about. But usually it's not what we would consider to have real-world value. So you're talking old mail, newspaper clippings, nail clippings, magazines, books, and clothes that the owner has no intention of ever wearing. But when they're asked to get rid of all that junk, or worse yet, when somebody else does it for them, hoarders are overcome with anxiety. Almost 1.5% of people worldwide are thought to be hoarders. But until the year 2013, hoarding wasn't officially recognized as its own disorder. Instead, it was lumped together with other behaviors as a type of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. And now a research group suggests that animal hoarding, that's collecting a lot of animals, should be split off 
even further from hoarding. How did they look into this? Animal hoarding has actually been a controversial topic for years. Unlike people who hoard objects, people who take in animals, and here we're talking like dozens of cats, dogs, and even birds or small mammals, have all sorts of reasons for doing it. The other thing about animal hoarders, part of what defines them, is that they don't take care of their pets. So you'll get a house with two dozen dogs that don't get enough food, water, trips outside, plus inadequate veterinary care. And a lot of times these animal hoarders think they're the only ones who can save them. Since not many studies have been done about animal hoarders, Brazilian researchers visited 33 houses in Porto Alegre, Brazil, with an average of 41 animals each. Wow. <laughs> Is that a hot spot for hoarding? I, well, I, I think that, you know, given some of the percentages here, we, we might say that there are similar hotspots in other parts of the world. Okay. Anyway, they, these places had an average of 41 animals. Most were dogs and cats, but several people in the group also collected, wait for it, ducks. 75% of these people uh, fell into the low-income bracket, 88% were unmarried, and 64% were elderly. And so far, that's actually consistent with characteristics of generalized hoarding disorder. So were there any major differences between people who hoard objects and hoard animals? First, generalized hoarding disorder, that's the big one, seems to affect men and women equally. But in this new study, 73% of the animal hoarders were actually women. And although it's long been thought that animal hoarders also hoard objects, the Brazilian research team found that only about half the households in the new study hoarded both animals and objects. The team's interviews revealed that hoarders tended to start collecting their animals after a big disaster in their lives, like the death of a child or the loss of a job. And that's a characteristic that's also not shared with generalized hoarding disorder. Okay, so is it enough? Is it enough to break it off into its own category? Are there any other boxes that need to be checked? Well, the researchers on this study obviously think so, but not everyone is convinced. Other researchers say that the study makes some interesting behavioral observations but it's just too small and preliminary a study to draw any big conclusions yet. But of course, given how these definitions evolve over time, I would say stay tuned for the latest version of the DSM. Now we have a story on color words and a special guest, Bryce Russ, sometime linguist and social media manager here at Science. Welcome, Bryce. Thank you, Sarah. Glad to be here. Okay, so I was very wary of the story from the headline. One language having more words for something reminds me of that old number of words for snow trope, which spawned the term snow clones for easily recognizable phrases in writing. But that's not actually what we have here. This is about whether or not the biology of our eyes, the way we see color, is related to the words we use to describe color. Right, Bryce? Yes and no. This isn't really a study about does red light look the same to you as it does to me. It's not really that kind of biological question. That's a more philosophical thing. So the basic question is linguists have known for centuries that different languages have different number of words to describe colors. And they've known for decades that 
there are certain patterns to how languages acquire colors. So if you're, a language has three words for colors, for example, two will be, you know, light and dark, but the third one isn't going to be purple or green or something like that. Um, so there are these patterns that exist, but linguists have always kind of disagreed about just what these patterns are and why these patterns develop. And so that's the question that this study here was trying to answer a bit more properly. What the researchers did here was take colors out into the field and ask people to describe them. Where did they go and who did they talk to? So they went to this area in lowland Bolivia, which is populated by people called the Chimane, who speak the Chimane language. Um, it's a fairly isolated language that is sort of unique in having only a few words for colors. And what they did is they presented the Chimane with these Munsell chips, which are basically a bunch of different colored chips, and had a guessing game. And there was a difference between these people who are described as hunter-gatherers. You know, they did struggle describing some colors. But it's not the case they can't see these colors or distinguish them. They just don't necessarily have a word keyed right to that specific color. Exactly. And it's the same thing that you see in the English language, for example. Not all of us, you know, I probably wouldn't necessarily be able to, if you gave me maroon versus magenta, I couldn't tell you which color is maroon and which color is magenta. But I could look at those two paint chips or those two colors and say they're clearly different. And the same the same works with other people, you know, no matter what language you speak. Why do researchers think, you know, what are researchers propose as the reason for these differences in color language. And <laughs> just give yeah. me one or two. You don't have to go the whole gamut. I know sure. there are probably a lot. Sure. So linguists originally thought when they were first creating these studies that it was based on how distinct colors were in the color spectrum, that they figured you would have to create light and dark, you would create red because that's most different from light and dark, and then you go on to this color and that color and that color. But what this study was looking at was more of an alternate theory, which is that we focus more on the colors that are related to things that we talk about more. So they found out the Chimane and speakers of English and other languages, for that matter, focused more on warm colors than colder colors, which is because the things that we talk about more in, you know, daily life, like fruits and other people and things have these warm colors, whereas background objects, you know, plants and grass and buildings and things will often have more of these cool colors. Um, One thing that I found really interesting, Bryson, sorry to interrupt, is this reminds me a little bit of a term that's commonly used um, in Chinese poetry. And that term Qing used to signify the colors blue, black, and green, but you mm -hmm. could only tell them apart in context. <laughs> okay, take us to the modern world then, Bryce. Definitely. And this is sort of an example of how words for colors will evolve over time. And another one of the points the study made was as societies and languages that these society use become more industrialized, their color terminology will adapt correspondingly. And that's sort of why they had some of the hesitation that, that you mentioned, Sarah. Um, but then when they're presented with some colors that you only see in, you know, industrialized sort of these artificial colors, they are able to identify them much more easily. Um, so it does turn out that how we use words for colors does kind of work the same, that languages accommodate to match the needs of the societies and the people that are using them. But that still doesn't mean that there are 50 words in the Inuit languages for snow. Thanks, Bryce. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Catherine might have one additional question for you. What is I it? I feel sort of bad to come in on that great ending. Um, <laughs> but the question I had, you know, both when this study first came up and when it was being written about is, how does this compare to other cultures? You know, I, I wasn't really sure if this was showing something that was unique here that we didn't know already. 
Sure. And one of the main virtues of the study actually was just how cross-cultural a lot of their data were. Um, it focused on the Chimane people because that's where they did most of their experimentation. But they also did some comparisons with the World Color Survey, which is compiled of data from about 110 different languages, I want to say, about the different color terms that are used. And they found at least this warm, cool distinction that we were talking about earlier does seem to hold up fairly well on most of these languages. They didn't experiment with every single one, of course, but it seemed, you know, like they found some really interesting things using this this new metric and this new game with sort of their experimental contribution. Last up, we have a story on sleeping with the fishes, the jellyfishes. Your favorite <laughs> fish, Sarah. <laughs> no. Uh, this new study purports to show that jellyfish sleep. Okay, Catherine, let me start with the question everyone asks when I talk about the study. How can you tell a jellyfish is awake? Well, it depends on whether you think they actually sleep, Sarah. <laughs> Researchers were interested in answering that very question, especially since jellyfish, unlike a lot of higher order creatures, lack a brain. Their central nervous system or central nervous system, uh, instead their nervous system is distributed in a ring around their bell-shaped bodies. You know, so fundamental question is, is if sleep is rejuvenating your brain, why are jellyfish, Why are jellyfish sleeping? And researchers thought they, they might try to figure out first if they were actually sleeping. And in this new study, they determined that when jellyfish are awake, they pulse their bodies at a pretty fast, for jellyfish, a pretty fast rate, about uh, one pulse a second. And this is Cassiopeia. It's a specific That's kind right. Of it's a specific uh, genus of jellyfish that actually float upside down so their tentacles go upward. But anyway, to get back to uh, what these researchers did, they found out that during certain times, uh, the jellyfish would pulse rather quickly at about one pulse per second. And they also swam pretty quickly as well. If the researchers moved them from one part of their tank to another and the jellyfish wanted to get back, they would swim very swiftly to the location that they desired. So that is the theory of the waking jellyfish. That is jelly in the daytime. What about jelly in the nighttime? Jelly at nighttime. These jellyfish uh, during certain periods would slow down their pulsing. Usually they would pulse at, like I said, you know, one pulse per second, which is equivalent to 60 pulses per minute. But at night, they slowed down to only about 39 pulses per minute. So that was the first hint that something might be going on. The second one was that when researchers pushed these slowly pulsing jellyfish to a different part of the tank, they were really slow to respond. It wasn't that immediate swift getting back to the corner of the tank they wanted to be in. And so they equated this with a groggy person, you know, the the person I usually am when I get up out of bed in the morning. Okay, so uh, they're kind of tough to wake up. They're kind of groggy when they do. What happens if they don't get sleep? That's another qualification. It actually has to be something that your body needs. Yeah. The researchers, you know, know that if certain creatures, including us, don't get sleep, we're sleepy the next day. So they decided to put these poor jellyfish through a period of sleep deprivation. And the way they did that was by taking their own pulses of water and just pulsing them with this water every 20 minutes for either six hours or 12 hours at a stretch. And sure enough, if they were sleep-deprived for 12 hours, they were sluggish the next day. We got slow to wake, sluggish when they do, sleep deprivation is bad for them. 
I'm kind of buying this asleep, but let's let's talk about what other animals sleep and and how far of a stretch this is. So the interesting thing about calling this a stretch is that not all researchers agree on which animals sleep. Uh, There was a really good quote in this story. Half the people say everything sleeps and half say only humans and mammals sleep. Uh, This particular researcher also argues that fish, flies, and even worms nod off regularly. But of course, the difference between fish flies, worms, and jellyfish is that the former have something resembling a brain. Right. Okay. So something without eyes or a brain sleeping, possibly. What's next? Are we going to find out that amoebas sleep? Uh, Researchers are starting to look into the idea, no studies that I know of yet, but this is on the horizon, that sponges sleep. And what's so interesting about this is that as sort of low on the animal family tree as jellyfish are. Sponges are even lower, which simply means they evolved earlier in time. And so if we were able to figure out some way to show that sponges also have an equivalent of sleep, this suggests that the ability to sleep evolved quite early. Okay. All right, Catherine, what else is on the site this week? We have a story on persistent infants and another story on how researchers are trying to come up with really revolutionary educational interventions for rural kids in China. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on how the German far right views science, very relevant with the upcoming election. And we have another story on how changing the formulation of a thyroid drug in France has led to some unusual side effects. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Cosmic rays are a fascinating concept in physics. These high-energy particles can be emitted by supernovae or the enormous black hole at the center of our galaxy. But researchers at the Pierre Auger collaboration have discovered high-energy cosmic rays coming from somewhere outside of our celestial neighborhood. I'm Andrew Wagner, and joining me today to discuss these deep space findings is one of the researchers, Carl Heinz Kamper. Hello. Nice to talk to you. So, uh, how did you detect these cosmic particles coming from so far away? Well, uh, we've conceived the observatory in such a way to measure the energy and direction of the primary particles. So and also to some extent what type of particles these are, whether these are light atomic nuclei like protons or helium, or whether these are heavier nuclei like silicon or iron. And to some extent we are also able to identify whether it's a photon or a neutrino. So the experimental challenge is that we observe a flux of cosmic rays which is very, very low. It's in the range of about one particle per square kilometer and year. So to collect a sufficiently large number of these particles, one obviously needs a very large area. And the Pierre Auger Observatory is the largest uh, cosmic ray uh, detector worldwide, and it covers an area of 3,000 kilometers squared, comparable to that of Rhode Island in U.S. So uh, luckily, we don't need to fully cover the 3,000 square kilometer with particle detectors. Instead, we can use a network of, in our case, uh, 1,600 particle detectors, each of which is a 12 tons water trank of detector, and these detectors are distributed on a grid. And now, when the primary cosmic rays that we want to measure 
when they enter the atmosphere, uh, they uh, suffer subsequent nuclear interactions with the atoms in the atmosphere. Then uh, a cascade of secondary particles produced. So uh, our particle detectors then catch a few of these secondary particles, out of which we are able to reconstruct the properties of the original cosmic rays that struck the atmosphere. The individual cosmic rays by themselves don't tell us how long they have been traveling before finally ending up their journey in our atmosphere. This information can only be inferred from their characteristic distributions, and in this case uh, it's the distribution of the arrival directions. And after having collected a very large number of these particles, about 30,000 uh, in this study, uh, we found that there is a significant departure from an isotropic distribution, which means there's an excess in one part of the sky. So how can you tell that these uh, particles are coming from outside of the galaxy? So if it were located in the galactic center, we would have expected to see an excess from that direction. If instead there were sources somewhere in our galaxy, say in the galactic plane, we would have seen a strong local excess of a source from that direction of the source. Uh, however, uh, what we find uh, is uh, is uh, enhancement of uh, a stronger flux in some part of the sky outside of the galaxy. A complication, an additional complication, is uh, magnetic fields. That particles are deflected in magnetic fields. So the question could be: Okay, this excess which which we observe, could that be uh, a source in our galaxy uh, and uh, where the particles are very strongly deflected by the magnetic field in the galaxy? And again, uh, one can do very extensive studies with different magnetic fields of the galaxies, and there is no uh, realistic scenario with a galactic source and galactic uh, magnetic field. Uh, where such a pattern as we observe right now uh, would be seen. So uh, that's a very clear indication uh, that it's from, from uh, outside of our own galaxy. You know, are these coming from a supernova or something else be, be sending these particles are in our direction? Honestly, uh, we don't know yet. Uh, single supernova remnants are, according to common wisdom, uh, unable to accelerate particles to these energies that we observe here. One may conceive a region of very many frequent supernova explosions or gamma-ray bursts in the recent past. Um, and then there is a outflow, a strong outflow of matter shock waves, uh, very large shock waves, uh, and they may be able to accelerate particles to the energies as we observe. Uh, these regions are known, and they are known as starburst galaxies, and that could be a source of, uh, of high-energy cosmic rays. Likewise, uh, in the literature, uh, one finds AGN, active galactic nuclei, as very um, uh, attractive source candidates, and they are driven by supermassive uh, black holes, much more massive than the black hole in our own galaxy. So we, we need to find out what these sources are, but now that we know that this mysterious cosmic ray source is out there, uh, what further research do you think should be performed to learn more about them? Uh, most important is uh, statistics, as always. Uh, so more statistics is a key. Uh, however, uh, I mentioned already uh, that the cosmic rays and these energies are composed of different primary particles, proton, helium, nitrogen, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the problem... Uh, in identifying the sources is the stronger deflection of the heavy primaries. Uh, so helium is deflected twice as much as protons. Carbon nuclei at the same energy uh, are deflected uh, six times as much as the protons. Uh, 
uh, thus if one were able in an experiment to filter out only protons and helium or just even only protons uh, and get away of the strongly deflected heavy primaries of course the sky map would be much cleaner to study uh, and this is one of the um, plans that we have for the future uh, we presently do an upgrade of the observatory an upgrade in that sense that we will be able to measure event by event uh, the mass of the primary particle and then do a composition, what we call composition enhanced anisotropy study, which means we will produce sky maps of protons only and of heavy primaries, and then we'll see whether these sky maps, sky maps look differently. And uh, what we expect to see then is that the pro proton sky maps will show the sources much more clearer, spot-like, uh, as, the, as the sky maps made of the heavy primaries. Dr. Kamper, thanks for talking with me today. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for calling. Karl-Heinz Kamper and colleagues write about an extragalactic source of cosmic rays in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.